Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by Evermed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world-leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevic. Hello and welcome to the new episode of Pharma Launch Secrets podcast. I am joined again today by Injonil Mukherjee, which is a sign that we did something well last time. <laughs> so for those who didn't catch our earlier episode, Injonil is an associate partner at uh, ZS Associates, where he manages a team of 30 people across India, Australia and US focused on sales and marketing consulting for US healthcare and pharmaceutical companies with special launch and product launches, segmentation, and go-to-market strategies. It's great to see you again, Injonil, welcome. Thank you, Bozi. Pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. So let's go straight into some of the big questions that exist out there in the market right now. So, you know, COVID is more or less over. So it's been now, what, two and a half years since it started, and we kind of have the new normal. There were also, I saw also, a few studies on how launches performed during COVID versus before COVID. Is it now like straight up, curving up and up and to the right, or is it, you know, first you do certain things before that. So what does the really the new world look like for pharma launches? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very interesting question. See, you know, one of the things is becoming clear that this decade, and it's not quite 10 years, really, it's seven years, 2023 to 2030, this is going to be a decade of both figuring out ways to launch differently and also somehow manage revenue erosion. I mean, if you look at your top 10 pharma companies, BMS, for example, is expected to lose 47% of his revenues between now and 2030, you know, because of the products, Pricer, Yervoy, Revlimid, et cetera, that, that's going to lose exclusivity. Pfizer is supposed to lose anywhere between 28 to 32% of its revenue or from its current assets, keeping the vaccines aside, right? So this is a year where a significant amount of revenue erosion is expected. No amount of launches, and this is my belief, no amount of launches can supplement that level of revenue erosion. That substituted with what I believe are three trends which are extremely important to bear in mind, which are all relevant in the new order. Trend number one, I think innovation, the pace of innovation is actually outpacing the pace of healthcare adoption, right? That's the new trend, right? This trend was somewhat there before COVID, but hey, COVID taught us that you could launch a vaccine in 18 months. And what was the conventional wisdom? 10 years, right? So that changed a lot of things. In fact, regulatory authorities like FDA and EMA, they are looking at their own processes and they're figuring out, can we start to significantly accelerate what they used to call fast track approval earlier. So I believe pace of innovation is going to outpace healthcare adoption. If you just look at cell and gene therapy as an example, right? There are 3,500 therapies which are under study today, right? Even if you take a 20% approval rate, let's say, which is you know 10 to 20% approval rate, that's a significant number of approvals that authorities have to do. But if you look at the adoption of cell and gene therapy and the ability of supply chains to be able to support cell and gene therapy as an example, that isn't there. That's point number one, right? Your pace of innovation is going to outpace your healthcare adoption. 
I talked about the pattern cliff, which is point number two, right? If you if you are on the line of losing 47% of your revenues or 30% of your revenues or what have you, you are not going to find the next big $5 billion asset. What that means is you're not going to launch probably 15 $200 million assets, so $300 million assets. That is only to go back to exactly the revenue levels that you had or maybe slightly south of that, right? So this pace at which you would be launching is going to change. That's a new world order. There used to be a time when my clients used to say that uh, I don't want to work in marketing anymore because I've done two launches over my career. I'm telling those clients that you would be probably doing three launches a year, <laughs> right? Forget a career. So it's, it's a big change. Right? So that's what the pattern clip is bringing. And maybe the third change is all around global access. You know, if you look across the industry, you look across what, across what executives are talking about, they're talking about health equity being a part of their commercial strategy. It's not just part of corporate strategy, it's part of commercial strategy. Very recently, if I if my memory serves me right, EFPIA, which is their European Federation of Pharmaceutical Drug Association, they basically said that once a drug is approved by European medicine medical authority, they are going to make sure that that drug is available to all the 27 member nations of EU within two years of approval. So companies for a very, very long period of time, especially at the time of launch, used to take a, a very specific uh, approach towards launching in key markets first, five years later, marking in the next set of markets, tier two markets, let's say, 10 years later or seven years down the line launching in tier three markets when they are looking at that as, as a mechanism of, you know, maximizing the long tail. That's not true anymore, right? That will not be true even from a public policy standpoint. Your, your authorities, government is going to intervene and they're going to ask for medicine availability across a broad set of markets from the get-go. So global access becomes a challenge. What does it mean for our clients? It means that when we have market access teams within our clients who are thinking about market access, they almost naturally have to think about what does market access look for EU and LATAM and Asia Pacific and of course North America from the get-go. That's probably 6x the amount of work market access teams have done traditionally at the time of launches, right? I think those are the three macro trends if you think about it. Innovation, the what's going to happen through LOE and, and the now need of global access and global launches much more than what it was earlier, which is becoming more and more true in the new world. Powerful. I'm just taking notes and thinking. Before, I want to ask you something about the first two points you made, but I want to first just clarify the term for the listeners of health equity. What is health equity and how is it different from the term market access that's been around for a long time? Oh, that's a very good question. Thank you for asking that. Health equity in its simplest terms means that I as a patient should have my zip code, the place where I live, the place where I work should not determine my access to medicines. So if I happen to be part of a wealthy and affluent neighborhood today, I get access to all sorts of healthcare medicines, you know, therapeutics, you know, what, what have you, right? If I'm part of a not so affluent neighborhood, my access to the same, same healthcare needs go precipitously down. And this I'm talking from a North American standpoint. If I happen to be a patient living in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, my access to medicine is pales in comparison with what the quote unquote developed world gets access to. 
health equity is essentially saying your place of living, your socioeconomic status should not determine your access to healthcare. Clear. No, thanks for that. I just wanted to make sure that everyone's on the same page among listeners because I've been hearing that term a lot lately. A lot of people in healthcare, so I wanted to make sure we understand it well. It's interesting, the two, first two points that you mentioned, pace of innovation will, will outpace you know, market adoption. You mentioned gene therapy as an example. And then the, you know, this whole notion of having many smaller launches rather than one five to $10 billion launch. First of all, one thing that is probably scary to think about if you're now a commercial leader and hearing this is, okay, so it costs like one to $2 billion to make a drug, <laughs> to actually develop it. And now I actually am faced with, you know, multiple 200 to $500 million launches. Is that going to be a sustainable commercial model? Yeah. Like, can I make up for the money in development? Like, <laughs> that's the first question that I would have. Several pharmaceutical companies are taking a very, very hard look at what their R&D strategy so far has been, right? The long lead time that it takes to bring a drug all the way to approval, I'm not even talking commercialization, all the way to approval, that is purely unacceptable in the new world, right? So whether it is fast tracking your drug discovery process, whether it is fast tracking your clinical trial process, I think these are, these are not even nice to do things anymore. These are must do's. If you just look at where AI is being, you know, people talk about AI all the time. 40, there's a ZS research that came out maybe four or five months ago that said, 47% of AI applications today in pharma is in drug discovery. So the manual process of sifting through multiple chemical compounds and having a team of scientists do that is now a team of scientists plus very robust AI algorithms, right? So if I can fast track drug discovery, then I can enter into clinical trials. Now, once I enter into clinical trials, you will see that the, that world is also changing really fast. CROs are changing the way they do patient recruitment. There is application of AI in patient identification, patient finding site selection, where I can do clinical trials much more effectively. FDA on the other hand is saying, hey, for many therapeutics, which includes, of course it includes cell and gene therapy, but it also includes multiple other oncology types as well, where they're saying, I don't necessarily need to wait all the way for your phase three results to be out. I'm going to change my processes of accelerated approvals. Right. And you can submit, you can submit data much earlier. And I'm going to put a new committee. They were talking about a new committee, maybe just about a week back. They were talking about putting a new committee in place with new processes. That's going to help them look at earlier phase data and start to make, you know, emergency use approvals or some sort of a fast track approval, et cetera, and so on. So I think this whole process of everything leading up to making a drug available is undergoing massive transformation compared to that. If you look at the way our commercial transformation has been, that has been lacking, right? Because the point of commercial transformation has been, I will largely follow the playbook that I have developed over the last 15 years. That's not going to work. So then the question becomes, if there is application of AI in drug discovery, is there an application of AI in go-to-market strategy? Companies haven't really answered this question. They haven't, in fact, they have actively resisted this question. Let me actually put it this way. And this is where the my playbook, my ways of working loom hard on the thinking of commercial leaders because they cannot fathom this world. So it's, it's a change that will naturally happen, right? The human brain will not be able to comprehend the amount of work that needs to be done to launch five brands or four brands in the course of one calendar year when folks have really done two brands over the course of their career. Got it. So th those are really, really powerful, powerful macro 
points that you're making, right? Because if we now simplify and say what we're talking about here is pharma companies, like, like all other big companies, have, if you boil it to basics, it's making new products and commercializing products. That's what it comes down to. So pharma companies are making new medicines. Sometimes it, they discover those, sometimes they buy it from somewhere else, but they're making new medicines and they are commercializing new medicines. So if you think about it, you're talking about transformation on both sides, right? R&D as well as commercializing. Now, the question then becomes at the end, if I'm understanding you well, if you fast track drug discovery, drug development, site selection, you make it more efficient, you accelerate drug review and approval. Of course, there are some things you cannot shorten, such as you know how long would patients on a, on a drug in order to see the effect, things like that. But there are a lot of things that you mentioned here across that journey process that can be done more efficiently through use of AI. The final result of that will likely be reduction of time and reduction of cost. Is that, is that what you're saying? Well, I would, I would actually say the final result of that would be, of course, availability of the product earlier. But what it means for the commercial team is now I have to figure out a means of commercializing that product very quickly because I have a runway of give or take four months before I need to commercialize the next asset. Mm -hmm. Got right? it. So I have four months to make the product work. So if I, if I look at a standard product adoption curve of a product in pharmaceuticals, the conventional wisdom says the first year is when I start to kind of prime the market right i start to see some growth but the growth in many cases is, is is a little slow at the end of the 12 month mark which is l plus 12 launch plus 12 i see that the uh, product sales start picking up and then they keep picking for up till you know l plus 36 unless of course there are some big competitive headwinds that come in right i'm talking about a standard thing and then at about l plus 36 is when you start to kind of see some tapering meaning that's where you've kind of reached your your maximum I am saying that that L plus 12 is when you had 12 month window to kind of figure things out, try a few things, see something being successful and see something's not work. That L plus 12 is going to become L plus four. So you'll have four months to do what you did over a 12 month window. So what does that mean from a commercial standpoint, right? What it means is if I am a brand leader trying to launch a brand and in that situation, the first thing I need to get right is I need to get my segmentation right because I don't have the opportunity of relaunching the brand. I will not be relaunching that brand. I would be launching another brand, <laughs> right? That's the likelihood. So I need to get my segmentation, right? My market access strategy, which is what I talked about earlier, right? Market access essentially means availability of medicine in the market. I need to have a very, very methodical approach towards figuring out which market do I intend to launch in. I might not be able to just say that I'm going to launch in my top three European markets and two North American markets and be done with it. I might have to be very purposeful about prioritizing the markets that I'm going in because I will not have the time to go back to that decision later. So I need to get my segmentation right of customers. I need to be very clear in terms of which market I'm launching in. In some cases, it's also it's a portfolio strategy question as well, which comes earlier than the brand. You know, there is a ZS analysis that says that companies who have focused and focus was defined as you have products in three or lesser therapeutic areas they have on an average seven they, they have on an average shown growth of seven percent or more year on year versus others who are spread across multiple therapeutic areas who on an average have grown by 0.2 percent so you see the delta seven percent versus 0.2 percent 
when I talked about customer segmentation, customers are looking at the pharma companies as well. They're saying, hey, are you an allergy company and an autoimmune company and an oncology company and with products in Nash? Like, who are you? And you call that specialty medicines? Like, that doesn't mean anything. That's the focus. So that's a portfolio strategy question much before product commercialization. So your portfolio strategy should be very clear to your customer community that I am trying to specialize in a few disease states where I'm trying to meet unmet needs of patients, but they are all analogous to each other. You know, they make sense, right? As opposed to spraying and praying, I'm, I'm playing in every therapeutic area under the sun. I'm trying to figure out where will I get money from. Segmentation of customers being very purposeful about, about the markets that you're going to launch in at the same point in time. So that's your market access, access point. When I talked about segmentation, now you're coming to commercial go-to-market models. If you have a very short window, accelerate your product uptake. There is a hard question that clients need to ask, pharma companies need to ask, depending on the asset, should I always take the traditional route? Traditional route is described as the following. I have reps selling the product. I have a bunch of commercial non-sales reps providing surround sound like, oh, I have a, I have an injection. I need a nurse educator to train the nurses. I have, I need to do somebody, you know, regional marketing folks who's going to do speaker programs. I need to have a medical sales liaison to kind of talk about scientific education and so on. That's what I call traditional. All of these roles is what pharma has had in its playbook of launching brands. A very short window to make a brand successful. The question is, do I need all of this? Is there a concept of a digital only launch? And that's becoming more and more clear because I know my patient, I know my physician subpopulation. I know my patient subpopulation. I'm hyper-focused. If I am hyper-focused, I can look at a mechanism of changing my commercial go-to-market model completely. I can say that because of this population, I know these physicians sub-segments very well. I know where in the patient journey will my product really come in. I need to drive that scientific education through my medical community. And I'm not going to compromise on that. And when it comes to commercial promotion, I am going to meet the doctor where they are. So I might have a digital first launch and my reps would be quarterbacks. As opposed to today, where my reps are my first line of promotion, digital is a quarterback because digital scales much more rapidly. Your ability to have multiple sound bites on digital is significantly easier than multiple sound bites through reps and so on. So I think there is a big question on the commercial go-to-market model as well that is pharma too stuck in its way of what it has thought to be successful and does that necessarily work if you have to launch five brands in a year versus two brands in five years, essentially. That is really powerful and I've been listening attentively and numerous questions. So let's say you shave off a year, two, maybe even more to get the drug to the market and basically shave off significant part of cost. I'm not an expert in R&D. Maybe it's, you know, 10, 20% off. We're talking very, very big numbers, right? Then it's good for patients in most cases. Now we're talking about commercial transformation. I remember time at, at Novartis when there were nine launches in one year across, I think, seven different specialties. Everyone was scared and everyone was talking like 50% of launches fail miserably, et cetera, et cetera. We are not, it's very different than being Biogen and Nora Nordis at the time that were focused on one disease pretty much. It was 15 years ago. It was diabetes and multiple sclerosis that had that focus that you're talking about and people knew the companies and, and all that. So now in this, in this new scenario, the level of agility will be just tremendous, number one. 
because you're doing multiple launches. You say, well, oh, this launch doesn't work. I'm going to the next one. So that screams <laughs> agility, right? And it also screams that, oh, some of the things may fail and we may, we may need to be okay with it. But it also requires a completely new skill set, right? So digital first, which I honestly don't really see <laughs> across the board right now within the pharma industry. So how do you think with that whole capability of marketeers is going to develop within pharma? Is it going to be, are we going to be seeing more people coming from other industries who went digital first and FMCG, sometimes they come and they don't know enough about healthcare and try to apply and then, you know, get stuck. I struggle to see how today's, those folks that you mentioned, which includes me, which, you know, I launched a product, billion dollar drug, like now is this new reality, are going to be able to do this. What do you think on that? You're raising a very important question in terms of skill sets of people, in terms of talent profile. Interestingly, if you look at any pharma company and let's take four divisions just just to just as a means of comparison, let's take their analytics and IS division, your information science, let's take their marketing division and let's take their digital organization. You would see there's a lot of talent rotation in analytics and digital. People come in from outside industry into pharma, leave pharma, go to other industries right both at the practitioner level in the analytics world we are talking about data scientists data engineers machine learning engineers all of that sort of talent profile both at the practitioner level as well as at the leadership level how many chief digital officers in pharma have spent more than five years in pharma you can count on your fingers now look at the marketing organizations how many hcp marketeer and patient marketer in pharma are more than 20, 15 plus years in pharma, 20 plus years in pharma, 25 plus years in pharma. That's because this is a function where talent rotation doesn't happen. And even if it happens, it's almost an inter, it's like intra-industry transfer. You know, folks from Novartis would go to Novo and folks from Sanofi was going to come to Novartis. But that's pretty much it, right? You're not getting talent infusion from outside because, and there's a reason of that, because when you look at executives, and I'm talking about C-suite here, when they talk about company transformation, they say, hey, I want to drive digital transformation. I want to drive AI transformation. And I'm going to get a leader who knows digital, who knows AI from outside. So somebody from FANG or somebody from, you know, e-commerce companies, etc. When they say we want to drive marketing transformation, they don't talk about getting a chief marketing officer from anywhere else. The chief marketing officer usually is a pharma born and bred. So it all starts there, right? If that talent profile doesn't change, incentives don't change if incentives don't change the way you train people doesn't change you can't we then can't go to our brand teams and say hey your marketers need to be more agile the first question they're going to ask is well what does being more agile mean a b who's going to train me on on being more agile c are my incentives even aligned with that right will i be penalized for being more agile and in nine out of ten times they actually will be penalized for being more agile Right, because there's a certain process they're supposed to follow and, and deviation from that process is considered to be blasphemous. So what are we talking about? It all has to start up top. Pharma for the longest period of time has always looked at external talent infusion, but not in commercial. No, no, that, that's a great point. I see some companies started to, to do that more and more that they bring like something like chief commercial or chief marketing or chief experience, customer experience officer from outside. And of course, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, with uh, someone who does have that agility and different way of thinking and grasps pharma and healthcare and all the constraints fast, may have a fair shot at being successful. That also 
what you said at the beginning is that it's almost like there needs to be a capability. I would call it the launch machine, right? And again, I remember that time at Novartis because it was like a rare year where one company had nine launches. And I remember there was this whole function that was built at a time. So is that something that you're proposing right now with your clients? So it's almost like build that as like a launch capability, having in mind that you have multiple 200 to 500 million dollar drugs as opposed to three 10 billion dollar drugs. You're spot on. In fact, I am a big proponent of horizontals as opposed to verticals. I mean, if there is one playbook that we have to take away from, let's say Silicon Valley, come, let's just look at Google. And this is a famous speech by Sundar Pichai as well, when he was talking about what makes Google successful, because Google is constantly launching, right? They are launching product upgrades or they are launching new products, etc. Right. And they are, they are also multifaceted in terms of the areas that they go into, right? Across a very broad spectrum. If they had created verticals, a vertical of search engine and a vertical of, you know, whatever, right, it would have been extremely hard for them to collaborate first. Second, their talent is probably the most sought after talent in the industry, in, in the world. Such people would have become very quickly dissatisfied because after the point, they want to do newer, better things. So they move to the whole world of horizontal. Take a leaf out of that and apply it to pharma. I am a very strong proponent of horizontals. You brought up customer experience. I think that is a very welcome change that I am seeing in pharma, right? Not everywhere, but there are some pharmaceutical companies that are talking about customer experience as a capability, right? So if customer experience is a capability, it should not reside within a brand team or a therapeutic area. It should cut across the company and the and customer experience professionals, people who understand human centered design, people who understand user experience, people who understand customer experience, people who understand what patient journey and patient experience truly means outside of the market research that brand teams have done and have called it patient journey. They should be a horizontal function that should offer their services across the board. You know, there is, there is a function which has become more, which started off as a horizontal and then unfortunately pharma does this with everything, made it a vertical, which was patient support, right? Patient support was theoretically meant to be a horizontal function because I am not a patient for a therapeutic area. I'm a patient in general. I can have comorbidities. If I have, if as a pharma company, I have two therapeutic areas and I as a patient happen to take drugs from both therapeutic areas, the last thing you want is to have a fantastic experience on brand A and have a pathetic experience on brand B because patient service is now within the two verticals. So conceptually, it was always meant to be a horizontal capability. Pharma made it into a vertical in many cases, right? And you have kind of therapeutic areas leading their own patient services, offerings and interventions. But that's the second ex example of what a capability should look like. Digital marketing is the third one, right? Digital marketing in my mind is a capability that should cut across. And when I say capability, they, you know, I, I make distinctions between capabilities that are as a service versus capabilities who are autonomous and driving strategy. For the most part, and this is this has been exemplified with other such horizontal capabilities that uh, that pharma has built. An example being analytics and insights, right? A horizontal function, but mostly analytics and insights has become a, as a service. So I'm going to do what the brand teams ask me to do. I am not actively formulating strategy. I am not telling the brand teams, no, no, no. This is what you should be doing. I think you, pharma has to actively combat that mindset. If you want to have customer experience as a capability, the strategy of customer experience should be with the horizontal, not the brand. They should set the strategy because guess what? They know the strategy better. 
they know what customer experience truly means the brand team would educate the customer experience team on the on the specifics of the brand right which ncp segment which patient population what is the safety efficacy promise etc but besides that strategy of customer experience with, should be with this horizontal the strategy of patient services should be with the horizontal the strategy of digital marketing should be with the horizontal so i think the more horizontals we start to develop the easier pharma would be in being able to take services and leverage the services of one to the other and be able to drive that agility so now as a marketer if you were to think about it which is where we began this conversation i don't need to ne necessarily develop all the skills i don't need to be a cx expert and digital marketing expert and patient support expert at the same time it's practically impossible for me to be but what i need to do is i need to be an exceptional program manager that's the new world of marketing because i already have my horizontals i already have my capabilities but for my brand i need to be able to know how, when and how to tap into all these horizontal capabilities and i need to be able to manage my launch as if i'm managing a program and bring these these functions in at the right point in time and ensure that i am building in that agility in my program planning so if anything you know you should pharma never talks about it but your uh, silicon valley companies do they get their product managers trained on prince certification which will be like why would anybody do that because they want their product they want their marketers to also be exceptional agile product product managers or project managers because in a way you're managing a project the project is launching the brand and you're bringing multiple capabilities along so that's a big mindset shift but that requires you know having an executive leader who comes in and understands this viewpoint that i'm not going to create an hcp marketing and a far and a patient marketing silo within my brand team i'm going to first look at capabilities and i'm going to train my marketers to leverage the services of these capabilities and be an exceptional product being an exceptional program manager on top of being a marketer Got it. We mentioned Prince. What is that? It's a Prince Two certification. It's a it's a project management certification specifically focused on agile principles. But agile principles not applied to IT projects. Agile principle applied to product development, product launches, focused on customer uh, or on customer experience in general. Got it, guys. So it's not like a PMP. It's basically project management, but an agile. Agile. Got it. Okay. I mean, the whole like being an agile marketeer, it's like, you know, a new thing in pharma. So, and, and then within this setup that you mentioned, so you have horizontals, then you have a marketeer with a, as a program manager. It used to be, you know, the team has market access, you have commercial lead, marketing lead, medical affairs working together. It sounds like this team now needs I'm going to launch capability and digital capability and customer experience. Who is at the end of the day responsible on overall for PNL? Is marketing person still responsible for this? Just the team that they work with expands and they need to have program manager mindset and uh, training or where do horizontal stand in terms of how is their success measured? Yeah, I think that's a very important question that pharma needs to figure out. Essentially, the, the, the question behind your question, Bozia, if I'm not wrong, is who owns the customer? That's at the heart of the question. The guy who owns the person, the person or the team or whoever owns the customer kind of owns the success or failure of the brand because it is about the pos positioning of the brand with respect to where the customer is in his or her journey. I think you cannot have fragmented customer ownership, which is what it is today, by the way, if you really think about it, right? You have a brand marketer. You also have sales reps who actually do see the customer. You have market access who are talking to payers and providers. Your, your, your market access teams are doing that. You have patient support teams who are talking to advocacy groups, right, et cetera, and so on. 
right now there is a there's a significant amount of fragmentation in terms of customer ownership many cases the customers start to overlap in many cases right i think that needs to all come together right and you can you can think about a commercialization officer it's probably an elevation of a title but it all needs to be centered on on one group that says okay this one this individual for example for this particular brand owns the customer customer defined as the set of stakeholders who are responsible for ensuring that the product is used appropriately and used at the right points in the patient journey to meet the unmet need now in order to in order to meet the varied needs of varied customers this commercialization leader has access to multiple different capabilities within the organization that he or she is going to call upon as needed so that the needs can be met so if the if the need is of providing financial assistance because hey let's talk about it right if you are like novartis launching the the sma product right which runs into millions of dollars per year you have to imagine that's a big market this is a big financial assistance question more than anything else right it's nothing else is more important then the person who owns the owns the customer works hand in glove with the market access team and says we are and patient services team to figure out how can we ensure that financial assistance is provided for a million dollar sma product which by the way if you don't take it is the difference between life and death but the the customer ownership is not fragmented the customer ownership is centralized right i, I think that is the big change right now there's significant amount of fragmentation and therefore the kpis become fragmented right the kpis for example for a sales leader is all about trx growth the brand leader is making sure that of course there is there is the brand trajectory in terms of how is the brand performing but it's also a bunch of operational metrics the brand manager is being measured on the patient services organization is measured on okay how many patient services interventions have you been able to launch and how many patients are you supporting through your hub market access team talks about okay how many payers have you gotten preferred tier access on so there are all kpis which are very functional kpis if you really start to think about it that's because everybody is looking at their own set of customers they are coming up with very operational and functional kpis and that's what they are measuring towards their success the true success measure in terms of is the brand truly meeting customers needs are they solving the unmet need isn't a kpi for anyone that happens naturally when you work in this kind of a siloed fragmented world i got it and then one thing i'll ask you before we go into some of the questions about you is notion of digital omnichannel personalization seem to be the word of the words of this year and you also mentioned digital first digital only launch and you know we talked about it last time a little bit on the content personalization so if there is one thing that pharma companies need to think about today as they're thinking of their digital function and content and data and everything what would it be i said that last time and i don't think so my my perspectives has changed digitalism means i think the real victory is in content and simplicity of content i think is is very important right digital just allows that dissemination of content to get scale much faster but i think the success of any digital application would be how can i drive faster delivery of content and be be able to pivot much faster because i'm learning about the customer in almost real time i think that is the way to be successful i am i'm a very strong believer in content 
personalization. Right. I think if pharma comp- if there is one thing pharma companies from a capability standpoint, you know, because we were talking capabilities, this one capability that pharma needs to truly adopt in the next two to three years is all about understanding content affinity of customers and being able to get to content hyper personalization. Today, the copy approval process, the message development process of pharma is completely broken compared to what customers need. It is a step-by-step process that pharma follows today to get to a certain piece of content. And it is so exasperating by the time you have reached to that point where you have a certain piece of content that there is literally no energy left. And all that pharma companies do is deploy that piece of content to every single customer who's on their target list. That's what happens today. And that is broken. That just does not work. From that standpoint, from content hyper-personalization standpoint, I think there are two capable, there are two things that are very important. One, of course, is the, the onus lies in the marketing team, honestly, which is around figuring out what content is it that my customers are looking for and in which channel are they looking for that particular piece of content, right? Even if they're looking for a micro piece of content, you deliver, delivering that piece of content through reps might not be productive when the customers are actually going online on some paid media to sort of look for that content, right? So figuring out what the right channel is extremely important. Delivering those micro pieces of content, I think is the responsibility of the the marketeer. That's where the agility comes in, right? Can I constantly develop those micro pieces of content? Can I be constantly listening to my customer so that I can figure out what is that next new piece of content that I should produce for my customers? That's a marketeer's job. The second big transformation, I believe, is the transformation that medical, legal, and regulatory groups have to go through. So the MLR teams today follow a very specific process in terms of approving content. And that process is in a way at odds at the pace at which content needs to be approved in this hyper-personalization world. So the legal and regulatory teams need to start to looking at their approval processes and say, hey, if I have approved a piece of content earlier, and the new piece of content that's coming to me is 75% the same. And it has only changed around the edges because marketing is trying to personalize it based on some customer attributes. I don't need to follow the 20 step process all over again because I've already done that for the earlier piece of content. Only 25% has changed. Can I just look at that 25% as opposed to look at the entire 100%? That's an MLR transformation. It's a process transformation, but it's an important process transformation. Otherwise it creates a bottleneck. So I believe that's that. And the role of digital would be to support this. Digital marketing would be to support this. That to me is omnichannel, right? If you, if you can get content right, and then if you can deploy that content appropriately across multiple different digital channels and sequence them appropriately. Yeah, I think it's, you know, what you're saying is really powerful. And I've been taking a lot of notes at Nox actually, because I, I want to remember some of this and further start to think about it. Without content, there is no data right that's continuous right you can get the data from crm from external 360 system but with, if someone is coming to your platform or other cha- or your channels and other channels that you have access da- to the, the, this data you're actually getting data and insight daily on what content will be needed for the future the new future content what actually content works what content doesn't work so it reminds me also what you said the multiple smaller launches this is multiple micro pieces of content that you know that two out of ten will work and you need to launch 10, but once you launch 10 and see two out of 10 work, then you're going to get smarter next time and the next time and the next time. So it's basically that kind of loop of build, test, learn, build, test, learn, that is the core of the agile, because that's, I think, what 
I had a chance to talk to, to AWS folks recently and their media and entertainment part of the business because that's what they do. I mean, Netflix, Disney, and so they're big, massive data businesses at the core. And even like six, seven years ago, I remember CEO of Netflix was saying how they came up with an idea for one of the big shows there, House of Cards. It was 10 years ago. By looking at the data, it's like U.S. president as a topic with, you know, like White House, with these two actors, with this kind of <laughs> setup that works. So that all starts with content. And then from content, you see the data and insights and you can do personalization and you can inform new content. So it becomes the actual flywheel. Now, you gave me an idea and I'll definitely ask you after this episode of how we can further develop this, this discussion, because I think what you just said content part and the MLR part as, a, as part of the overall content success are critical. And I think that it's not a question whether that will be needed as a capability. It's a question, when can it be executed? And with that assumption in mind, you know, really love us to kind of help educate and spread the kind of like a little bit knowledge on how that is done in other industries and this and that. So have some ideas. Towards the very end, uh, I have some questions so, for you. Some of them you answered last time, but maybe your answers have changed as well. So first of all, the favorite industry buzzword of the year 2022. Oh, industry buzzword. I think it this year, I have a few. One is omnichannel. I have heard that word so much this year. Everybody's talking omnichannel. I percent of them don't even know what they're saying, but they're at least saying it, <laughs> right? Yes. That's one, my, one of my buzzwords. The other buzzword that I'm hearing a lot is this one, new normal. New normal, new normal. New normal, right? This is the new normal. So yeah, those are my, those are my two. Perfect. And what is the best book you've read in the last 12 months or four months since we talked? I have now moved away from reading any business books and I've started reading Lord of the Rings again. And oh, nice. I remember okay. reading Lord of the Rings when I was uh, far younger, <laughs> right? I was lost in that world of Tolkien and nothing has changed. The power of words, you know, the power of words and the, imagine, Im the imagery that it creates when you read these books, I think they are, they don't age. They are timeless is what I have to say. So all of those folks who are into business and your executives, if you're hearing this podcast, I would say, go back and read Harry Potter, go back and read Lord of the Rings. It's my guarantee that you'll find yourself transported into a new world, right? And you'll feel like a kid again. And who doesn't want to feel like a kid? Yeah, yeah. And play. I agree. I honestly get more ideas lately from not reading business books, but reading something else or watching something else because start to make parallels from somewhere else. And then suddenly I have actually <laughs> what I think is a good business idea. And what is the, who in the world of pharma would you most take out for coffee or lunch today? Huh, that's an interesting question. Who in it's the tough, world? Especially if you work on the consulting side, because <laughs> you yeah. might be. You know what? Or I in healthcare. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there are. There are three individuals that come to mind. One, I would want to take Albert Bula out, CEO of Pfizer. Yeah. Simple reason, he has been able to do, of course, Moderna CEO, kind of Moderna and Albert Bula at the same time, and I'll take both of them out to figure out what did it take for them as an organization to do what they did, which is get a vaccine out in less than 24 months, right? I would have to believe the reason I said Albert first before CEO from Moderna is he had to shake up a very, very large organization to get to that speed. At least Moderna had the advantage of not being that big, 
So yep. I don't know if the challenges were any different, right? Maybe there were different set of challenges, but I think I'd learn to learn from Albert in terms of how, how could he do that, right? I would definitely take this. There's a client of mine. Her name is Barbara Salami. She's the head of digital in Moderna. They are doing tons of stuff with digital that's going to be path breaking for the industry. I see them as one of those companies that is truly taking a digital first mindset towards their entire portfolio. And Barbara is kind of leading that charge. I would love to sit down with her and understand two things, right? First thing that I want to understand from her is what are the roadblocks or challenges, if any, she's facing internally. Because as much as it is an external transformation, I have to believe it's an internal company wide transform internal company transformation as well, right? Digital is not the digital first is not the way pharma thinks, at least, right? So how is Barbara kind of driving that within Moderna? So she might be the second person I would I would take out on a lunch. And the third person that comes to my mind that I might take out would be the executive of BMS. The reason is everything that I said earlier, right? You, if you have 47% of your revenues going out in the next decade, and you've been an incredibly successful company up until this point in time, like you have Revlimid, you have, you know, you have Eliquis, brands that have been ex exceedingly successful, Obdivo, met patient needs. In that kind of an environment, how do you manage shareholder expectations? I would have to believe that he would have tremendous pressure of continuing the company legacy, making sure that, uh, you know, sh and, uh, you know, making sure patients are, all, are always kept at the forefront. But at the same time, I would have to believe he's under tremendous pressure from shareholders to make sure that the, you know, pipeline is being replenished. How is he managing that? I think there's, there are, there's, there's tons of wisdom in him that he can share with the whole world out there in terms of how just to manage a company when it's going through a massive period of internal transformation. Yeah, maybe we should have them on the podcast. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so, sure. why not? <laughs> yeah, I would yeah. definitely be a listener to that then. <laughs> that is awesome. And where can people find you online? They can find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I am also, I'm also there on Facebook. I'm not super active there, but I, I do happen to check, check Facebook a lot. But yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn for sure. That's excellent. Well, thank you, Injoni. It's been a real pleasure. If we could go <laughs> in longer episodes, and you gave me you several ideas that definitely want to develop further and, and discuss. So thanks again, and it was a pleasure having you again. Thank you very much, Bozi. It was a pleasure talking to you too. This podcast was brought to you by Evermed. Evermed offers pharma companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Evermed, thanks for listening.